Stephen Palmer's Hairy London, episode 23. The Zeppelin Ben's horseless carriage ran on fish water, and the stink of it followed them up the Windsor Castle paved road. Estacia, slumped in the back seat with Cornucope at her side, felt mixed emotions. Relief that Yegman had been captured with not even a shot being fired, but afraid of the fate awaiting herself and Cornucope. This is a mile and a half from anywhere, the Guardian told them as he helped them out of the horseless carriage. It's the furthest you two can be from civilization round here. He smiled, doffed his cap. I like to do the best for me boss. Good night to you, sir, ma'am. With that, the horseless carriage chugged away, leaving a pong of kippers. Estatia peered through the moonless night at the land around them. They could simply walk back along the road towards Windsor, but anything might happen in that mile and a half. Already, she saw campfires burning to the west, smelt roasting meat, and heard the bang, bong, bang of tribal drums. They had no weapons, the clothes they stood in, and little else. We're done for, Cornucope said. The savages will smell our fear. Not over the odour of roast venison, she replied. I think our best plan is to follow the route back to Windsor. It's the best populated area. Anyway, Englefield Green and Woodside are equally distant. Yes, yes, Cornucope said. Let us set a smart pace, dearest one. But within five minutes, Estatia knew trouble followed them. Glancing over her shoulder, she saw the pale blue glint of a magic lanthorn and heard the clip-clop of horse hooves. Moments later, they were surrounded by five riders, wild of hair, brass rings in their noses, dressed in hay skirts and sandals. Who do we have here? the leading man asked. Estatia looked them over. All were men, middle-aged, with paunches, and their leader spoke well. A home county's accent, possibly beaten, which lay close by. She replied, Could you escort us to Windsor, please? It was a brave attempt. It failed. The rider laughed and replied, you stink of fish. You're coming with us, and at dawn we shall sacrifice you to Pisgod, the fish deity of Virginia Water. To put them off, she replied, I don't sound so bad. But in response, the riders laughed and made mocking fish-breathing gestures. The riders were part of a Piskeen tribe occupying land near the Polo Club on which they had built rude huts made of wood and wicker. Campfires burned bright, and the thrumming sound of tribal drums echoed across the nearby lake. On the local obelisk, the chieftain had hung a number of shrunken heads, along with the pinstripe Savile Row suits and crinolines that the victims had been wearing at the time, the sight of which made Eustatia's skin crawl. 
a number of white posts have been sunk into the ground beside the lake shore. And to these, Estesha and Cornucope were led, their hands tied with dried fish gut. To the posts, they were secured. A score or more men and women danced around them, shaking babies' rattles, ice cream makers and cheese graters, while others banged drums with spaghetti spoons. Thus, the rituals began. Exhausted, Estatia and Cornucope waited for the night to end. A pale glow in the sky, Estatia snorted and raised her head. She had for a moment dropped off. She was cold and damp. The shore was silent, the fires out, the odour of ash in the air. Wake up, Cornucope! He also had fallen asleep. Gag! he cried out. Circulation's gone with these blasted ropes. Curse Piscod and his tribesmen. Piscod doesn't exist, Eustatia said. We've got to cut these bonds through in case they are cannibals and they come back. I think Piscod does exist, said Cornucope gesturing with a nod of his head towards the water. Estatia stared. The surface of the lake had been as calm and reflective as mercury, but now ripples travelled out from white shapes bobbing in the water, white shapes that grew and closed. Somebody, something, was emerging from the lake. Two, three, four of them. The shapes became heads, ghostly white heads, in which dark eyes flashed. Then humpbacked bodies emerged, white-skinned and dripping, naked and hairless and vile. Then muscled legs, and finally great webbed feet. The four monsters breathed air as if it were choking smoke. Their stertorous gasps and grunts echoing across the shore. Then they pointed at the posts. They grinned. Their sharp, white, pointed teeth were like the teeth of sharks. Estatia, scared and witless, tried to escape her bonds, but it was hopeless. Two monsters freed her, then grabbed her arms, while the other two worked on Cornucope. And soon... They were both being dragged towards the lake. It seemed they would drown. But as they reached the water's edge, the monsters halted, a taking strange glassy mechanism from the humps on their backs, which they placed over their victims' heads. Estatia tried to wiggle free, the claustrophobia of the apparatus terrifying her, but the monsters gripped her, then spoke in hissing voices. Do not struggle. No need to panic. Breathe easy underwater. Why are you taking us, you beast? Eustatia replied. To Piscod, who will judge you? Cornucope gasped and struggled. Be strong, Eustatia cried out, not knowing if the glassy substance would mute her voice. Air hissed as it entered the monstrous helmet and Eustatia had no choice but to allow the monsters to lead her into the water. She squeaked as the lake covered her head. The water was calm, the claustrophobia intense, but she could at least breathe. The monsters simply carried on walking, 
as if they could not swim, and soon Estacia noticed a glow in the darkness ahead, like moonlight reflecting off the sea. Minutes later, she saw Pisgod's palace. It appeared to be made of luminous bone, crenellated, buttressed, enormous, with tall towers and dark bejeweled gates. Around this phantasmagorical palace swarm innumerable jellyfish, alongside minnow shoals like storm clouds and rainbow trout in their dozens. Pike guards swam with lazy menace at the gates, armed, Estacia noticed, with tridents. They were led inside through an airlock. Estacia was surprised to see that the interior of the palace was for air-breathing creatures. The monsters began to suffer, coughing <coughs> and gasping as they took the helmets off. Then the monsters used hot air machines to dry Estacia and Cornucope's outer clothes and offered mugs of hot water. Here we shall leave you, they said as they departed. Estacia and Cornucope were left alone in a silent, bare chamber, white as chalk. Estacia hugged Cornucope and said, This is a terrible day. Will we survive, do you think? I do not know, dearest one. We are in the hands of devils. All I know is that I will protect you, as you will me. Yes, Estacia replied, nodding and wiping tears from her eyes. We'll always have one another. Dearest one, yes, darling. Cornucope seemed discomforted. I have a confession to make, he said, and I want to make it now in case anything happens to us. What is it? The Princess Zarina inveigled me in a close, amorous embrace. She is a black witch of Rusio and deserves nothing better than the hangman's noose. Estacia had never received even a hint of infidelity from her husband, and she was shocked. Cornucope? Surely not. But the thing is, he continued, I thought I might love her. It may be ponder such matters. After all, I am on Pantomile's wretched wager, discovering the nature of love. If that babushka witch can fool me, why not anyone else? You mean me? Cornucope nodded. I suspect that I love you, he replied, and I am certain I did when we were married, but how do I know? Cornucope, we've been married for... Yes, yes, dearest one, do not fob me off. The whole idea of this cursed jaunt was for us to reinvigorate our marriage. Even our lives, was it not? Such has been done in the vilest, most perilous manner. I need to understand this before the season is out. If Zarina can fool me, why not any woman? What words can I place before Sir Hosley Fane and Lord Blackenor to convince them that I have penetrated the secret of true love? Estacia, despite her shock, grasped the sincerity of Cornucope's words. He was a philosopher, after all. In a calm voice, she replied, You'll find the words. If Serena has taught you anything, it must be that love can't be faked. In the end, Cornucope, she would have buckled under the weight of her act. He looked at her 
and nodded. Yes, yes, you are right. But such an open-ended statement will not pass muster. It is not proof. Perhaps the problem's insoluble. Then we are doomed. As long as we're happy. Cornucope nodded. There was a click, then a door appeared in one of the white walls. In walked a man with the front half of a fish for a head. Jeremy saw that it was indeed the dreaded Cockney uprising in its awful majesty. The explosion had been created from mashed potatoes, while the Joannas were transported on steam-driven elevators. Hundreds of Cockneys swarmed across the hair of Whitechapel High Street, so many, in fact, that the hair was plastered down by mud and moisture becoming little more obstacle than a Spitalfield zapper. Trapped, Jeremy wailed. Trapped and so close to home. By now, the outliers of the uprising were near, and two fat women dressed in nightshirts and carrying flaming torches approached them. Who are you? One asked. Speak to them, speak to them, Jeremy whispered, nudging Mrs. Ford. Don't you go mistaking me for one of them, Mrs. said, annoyed. I'm the daughter of a princess, remember? Uh, but they're your type. An expression of anger passed into Mrs. face, but before she could reply, the fat woman said, Well, I recognise your type, mister. You're a knob, even if your lady ain't, and I'm going to march you both to the pearly king and queen. No. Jeremy said, we're innocent bystanders. Sergeant Cough had risen to his feet. He said, they're innocent. But the fat woman used handcuffs to shackle Jeremy to her side while Mrs. was treated similarly by the other. Well, <laughs> they're ours now, the fat woman informed Sergeant Cough. They were marched back into Old Castle Street through the thousands of cockneys swarming south Flaming torches, shouting, looting, the din deafened them. So many people had passed along the street that its hair was little more than a soaking mat of bedraggled pelt, in terrible condition and in need of a wash. Before long, they found themselves in Houndsditch, where Jeremy saw an encampment guarded by growling dogs. At the edge of the street, they paused while one of the fat women walked forward. Respectfully, Jeremy noticed. A marquee stood in the centre of the street, made of canvas, covered with hundreds of thousands of sequins that shone in flambeau light, making the fabric look like burnished copper. Despite himself, Jeremy was impressed. Scared, too. The fat woman returned. All right, Froons, she said. Follow me tight-like. Ain't no funnies, else it's poker time. I understand, Jeremy said, not understanding a word, though he guessed the woman's meaning from her tone of voice. They were led inside the marquee, where Jeremy saw people dressed in leather jackets and kirtles, drinking mugs of foaming brew. 
Discordant Joanna music plinky-plonked from some distant instrument. Then the people parted, and Sharmi saw two pearl-garbed figures seated on low thrones, smeared with jelly. He gasped. They were natives. Hot oh, damn! The native man stood up, brushing dust off his costume. No damn he replied. Me Babylon Ting Willem, Burley King and leader of the Cockney Uprising. Skilled in philosophy, singing and politicking. And you be? Sheremy did not know what to say. All the experience he had of Mrs., all the mistakes he'd made with her, all the stupid things he'd said about her mixed parentage, her class, her inability to write, he saw them now as pure foolery. He bent low on one knee and replied, Sir, there is a canker at the heart of this city, and I'm not talking about the hairy plague. I'm talking about the stranglehold rich people, landed gentry, and other toffs have on power. I'm only a small fry noble, lesser gentry if you like, but I've learnt a lot about the real state of London. And, Your Majesty, I don't like what I see. What you saying? Jeremy stood up and took Mrs.'s hand in his, pulling her towards him. Is your uprising aimed at Whitehall, sir? Because, if it is, I'm on your side. What your name? Jeremy Pantomile of the Suicide Club and other less famous organizations. The Pearly King was impressed by this. Our uprising aimed at food store mostly, he said. But, yeah, when the people fed, we march on the government. Jeremy gazed at the Pearly King. We should speak in private, sir. The Pearly King nodded, then clicked his fingers. A minute later, only Jeremy, Mrs. and the Pearly stood inside the Marquis. Sir, Jeremy continued. I've escaped bedlam, pushed through all manner of hair, struggled with the fogs and the games of old Father Thames, faced war in Limehouse, and tangled with Jacques the Raper. I've seen a few things, and this woman at my side is my intended. Yes, though she's half Hindu. You see, I've realized that it's not important how you look. What matters is what you do. Dem fine words, said the Pearly King. I liken it. So what can you do to help the uprising? I have the ears of many of the rich and powerful in London. I'm a member of the Suicide Club, which is located in the residence of Lady Juinefere Bedwoods. That lady, the Pearly King said, this good. She got many friend in Downing Street. Exactly, said Jeremy. You's never told me any of these, Mrs. complained. My dear, what could I possibly have told you? She shrugged, then smiled. True, she admitted. She squeezed his hand. I see in good love between you two, the pearly king said. This bud well. We intend going west, into the city, find good food, then eat it. Jeremy nodded. And when the poor and starving people have been satiated, he said, we'll talk politics 
and your majesty, I shall be your messenger. He paused for thought. It won't be easy, however. The upper reaches of London society are so hidebound you could build a small town in them. But we'll succeed, we'll succeed, because we've got right on our side. Oh, Jeremy, Mrs. said, fanning her flushed face with one hand. I do believe I'm falling in love with you. He turned to face her. And me, you, he said. And not because I have a wager to win. A wager? A small matter of 90% of my fortune. But fear not, my dear. With you at my side, I can't fail. Velvine trudged along the narrow lane that led to Orchard Tide Manor, the great country estate of the Orchard Tides at Tring. Ahead of him walked a woman that he thought he recognised, Lilibet Spoonworthy. But it could not be her. She was long gone from his life. Dandelion seeds blew in the breeze. He let his hand brush the honeysuckle growing around saplings in the road verge, the sun warm on his face, his body at rest, his mind wandering he knew not where. Nor did he care, for he was far away from the noise and the chaos, with not a worry in the world. The wrought iron gate of the manor appeared as he rounded a corner. A few yards ahead, Lilibet's dark blue dress shimmered, birds singing above and around her as she walked. Her honey-blonde hair seemed to glow in the sunlight. It was, he thought, one of her most attractive features. Lilibet opened the gate so that he could walk through. The brass plate to the side of it read, Orchard Tide Manor Sanatorium for the Mentally Affected. He was not sure what that meant, so he ignored it. They walked side by side down the road leading to the manor. It took some time, passing copses and herds of deer as they progressed, but after a while he saw the house ahead and he smiled. They spoke not a word to one another. Velvine too occupied by the sensation of tranquility to disturb the peace. At the front of the house he saw a number of horseless carriages, and then, on the steps, a tall, thin man of middle age, wearing a frock coat and brown loafers. Welcome to Orchard Tide Manor, the man said. I'm Dr. Hogbristle, Velvine grinned. I wanted to come home, he said. Dr. Hogbristle nodded. Of course you did. You were a private, I take it? A private? Oh, you mean in the army? Yes, Velvine Orchard Tide 394 stroke 55. Dr. Hogbristle put his hand on Velvine's shoulder to guide him into the building. And your real name? Well, my real name is Velvine Orchard Tide. I grew up here. Of course you did. As it happens, Mr. Orchard Tide, you'll find a lot of men convinced they grew up round here. The important thing is to rest and recover your composure. I'll see you later and explain a few things. Velvine glanced around the hall. Where is Lilibet? Who? Lilibet, who flew me here and walked me down the front road. In a low voice, Dr. Hogbristle said, 
You arrived alone, Mr. Orchardtide. But she flew me here in the Chameleon Machinora. Yes, we do have a lot of men convinced they flew here. Velvine, now rather concerned, looked up and down the entrance hall, noticing that all the paintings had gone. Where are all the pictures, eh? This house was requisitioned some time ago by the government, Dr. Hogbristle explained. I wouldn't worry about it. We'll defeat old Kaiserville. Velvine made no reply. He was starting to worry, and deep down inside there was a feeling, a familiar feeling, threatening to rise up and explode out of him. He thought he heard rifle fire. At the further end of the corridor, he saw men walking, all of them with white bandages around their heads, many of them walking with the aid of sticks. I want some tea, he said. The next thing he knew, he was sitting in a chair in a private room, which he recognised as the music room. But now there were no harpsichords, no lutes, no collection of original bone flutes. Where am I, eh? he said. A woman entered the room, dressed in a white gown with a white cap on her head. I'm Nurse Spoonworthy, she said. Lilibet. Oh, Velvine, I've been so terribly worried about you. Lilibet, what are you doing here? She replied, I volunteered to be a nurse, helping injured soldiers. You only just survived, Velvine. I've been half mad through worry. But why, eh? I thought you might die, and I shouldn't want that. Velvine frowned. This could not be Lilibet, could it? Their friendship had ended a few years ago when he joined the Suicide Club, and she got engaged to Barrington Great Spottle. It simply could not be her. He said, Did you fly me here in the Machinora? Lilibet handed him a silver tray, on which lay a glass of water and two white tablets. Take these, Velvine, dear, she said. I've got other patients to see, but I'll come back. I'll be keeping a special eye on you. Thank you, Velvine said, as he swallowed the tablets and drank the water. Lilibet left, and a few moments later Dr. Hogbristle walked in. He sat on a chair next to Velvine and said, Now then... How are we feeling? All a bit confusing, is it? Where did you put the harpsichords, eh? You've had a bad dose of shell shock, I'm afraid. Gets a lot of soldiers, you know. The important thing is to keep taking the tablets. I'm hoping you remember who you are, where you live, that kind of thing. But I'm afraid some soldiers never come round. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news, old chap, but it could happen to you. Still, there's always hope, isn't there? It's not like you've lost your legs or anything. Reports coming in of gigantic Huns spraying poison gas on our lads, and that's not sportsmanlike. Could be you're one of the lucky ones. Lucky, Velvine repeated. What happened to old Chock? He loved his country, you know. Did he pull through? Oh, I expect so. Look, I must dash, so see you later. Wait, wait, uh, do you have a nurse called Miss Spoonworthy? Dr. Hogbristle paused for thought, then said, Could be. Doesn't ring a bell just at the moment, though. Ta-da!
Veldine sat in silence. For a while he tried to imagine the sound of music, as once had echoed round this very room, but he found the effort too much. It was more relaxing just to sit in the chair and do nothing. After a while he became bored, so he walked out of the room and into the corridor, which lay empty from end to end. The reverberated voices of nurses and weeping soldiers echoed without cease. He walked to the nearest door and stepped outside. This was the rose garden. Just along the way lay the walled garden. The sun was warm, shining in a cloudless blue sky, so he decided to go for a stroll. Then, glancing into a pond, he saw his reflection. He fell to his knees, staring at the apparition. Oh, dear God, I had not shaved for days. He staggered to his feet and ran back into the house, clattering up the stairs to the nearest bathroom, ignoring the shouts of bandaged soldiers and women in white coats. In the bathroom, he searched with shaking hands for a brush, shaving foam and a razor. He found a small leather bag, shaving brush, razor. There was a sliver of soap on the sink. That would have to do. But his hands would not stop shaking. Leaning over the sink, he forced himself to calm. Steady, Velvine. It's only a touch of the shakes. Probably one too many Bordeaux spritzers last night, eh? He soaped his stubble and shaved. Not too bad. Only one cut. He sighed, relaxed. He washed his face and walked downstairs, returning to the rose garden. The sun shone. He felt better. But he noticed there was a hint of beard on the steps behind him that had not been there before. In the walled garden, he found Lilibet sitting alone on a seat. So he strode up to her and said, All by yourself? We must not have that. Velvine, dear, she replied. How are you coping? Well enough now I've had a shave. I look like a monster. Goodness only knows what I might have done if that had been allowed to stay. She stroked his cheek with the back of her hand. You're always so well-groomed, Velvine, dear. I do declare you must spend an hour in the bathroom every morning. But you cut yourself. Are you hurt? Just a slight nick. Nothing to worry about. Shall we walk on, eh? Arm in arm, they perambulated around the walled garden, before Velvine decided a stroll in the pear garden might be pleasant. It lay empty and silent before him, the trees loaded with fruit. I used to play shove badminton here, he said. He shuddered. Something horrible writhed in the depths of his mind. Still... That is enough about that, he muttered. Why? Velvine, dear, whatever is the matter? Velvine felt pain throb along his temples. He stopped, leaned over, and the pain departed. I think it's just a lack of food, he said. Shall we return? There are bloaters and tomato castles left over from lunch. The pain returned. Oh, goodness, Lilibet, I do not feel at all well. What is the matter? Tell me. You can trust me, Velvine, dear. I'm your Lilibet. Velvine leaned over again, his hands on his knees. 
A dark shadow was gathering in the back of the pear garden, something he could see from the corner of his eye, but which refused to remain still. Solid, and, and now he felt sick. He said, Uh, perhaps not the bloaters just now. He looked down at the grass. Hair was growing and twining with the weeds, covering the lawn, springing up everywhere. I, I feel dizzy. I want to lie down. I shall lead you back to the house, Lilibet replied. You can lie in your bed and sleep for a while. We've got laudanum, you know. Felvine fell over. Dr. Hogbristle will fill me up with laudanum and I will become half dead, he groaned. I just need to get away from here. Dr. Hogbristle is not the director of this place, Lilibet replied in a firm voice. You can always appeal to his superior. Uh... Who, who is his superior, eh? Why, the dragon of the top floor, didn't you know? The man with a fish for a head said, I'm to take you to Saigod. Who are you? Estatia replied. The man turned without answering, so they followed him through a maze of corridors to a small room painted blue. The man opened a door in this room and gestured them through. They walked into a submarine wonderland. The chamber was glass-topped and seemed to be quite near the surface of the lake, if the dim, oscillating sunbeams were anything to go by. Fish swam everywhere in the water outside. Inside the chamber there were blue coaches, blue chairs, blue tables and blue desks while the lighting was provided by azure lanthorns. But much else filled the place, and it was the ephemera of the outside world. Implements, stuffed animals, crockery, bricks and stone, even scientific instruments. In the middle of this chaos sat a small, pale, bald man, in what appeared to be an indigo horseless carriage. With a crooked finger he gestured for them to approach, the door closed behind them, and there was a noise as of a key turning in a lock. Estatia bowed to the man, palms together, and murmured, Namaste. Who are you, sir? Cornuco asked. I am Saigod, king of the underwater realm. His accent was curious, his mode of speaking old-fashioned. Thou art... "'Strangers in my court.' "'Yes, Your Majesty,' Cornucope replied. "'We do not wish to be here. "'Thou art my subjects. "'Thy chattels and worth are directed to me alone. "'Have you been here long, Your Majesty?' Three hundred years all alone,' he replied. "'And now thou art here in my power, and mayhap,' I shall have me a wife at last. Estatia glanced at Cornucope. This man, Cornucope Weatherby, is my husband. That would gainsay my word? Estatia shrugged, not knowing what else to do. There are laws against bigamy, she said. Thou standest in my world, and I am lonely. Fair, terrible, lonely, these centuries have crawled by like garden slugs. Struck by the simile, Estatia said, You were once a man of the outside world, Your Majesty. 
Ah, indeed. Then the Sigodians took me. But thou art a woman of fire and passion, my lady. Wilt thou make me a good wife? Cornucope asked, Who are the Sigodians? My servants, my subjects, my piscine slaves. Estatia said, Your jailers? Quiet, hag! He raised what appeared to be a golden trident from the floor of his horseless carriage. This will pull out thy tongue if thou not be silent. Your Majesty, said Cornucope, if you wish to return to the outside world, as seems likely to me even taken into account the brevity of our acquaintance, all you have to do is demand it of your Sigodian servants. They be half-dead creatures of the other world, he replied. I may not gainsay them, and they never gainsay me in their cold aquatic worship. It is a stalemate, but now, now I have me a lady close by. But I love another, Estatia said. Love? Yes, yes, your majesty, love, Cornucope cried. I would do anything for Estatia, my most dear wife. Do you think love can be handed around like sweetmeats? It is a thing of the heart, of time and patience, a thing of giving, and, your majesty, of taking, though it be in equal measure. It is the understanding of life, if you will, over time, and with one other of merit. Cornucope, Estatia exclaimed, do not forget a word of that speech. He nodded, out of breath, then replied, I shall not. Turning to the king, he concluded, Your Majesty, you cannot force my wife to love you. Your hope, though it is sincere and heartbreaking to behold, is false. The king sighed. Thou hast right on thy side, he said. I am doomed as ever I hast been. Cornucope began walking around the chamber. Where do all these objects come from? he asked. My subjects bringeth them to me from the outside world. Likest thou my new throne? It arrived three senites ago. Cornucope examined the horseless carriage. Uh, but, your majesty, this is a brand new Zeppelin Benz. He sniffed the diesel tank. It even has fuel in it. I understand not thy whimsy. Cornucope slapped his hand upon the bonnet. This throne is a vehicle. You can simply drive out of your prison, your majesty. But I cannot drive. Canst thou? Cornucope grimaced. No. And neither can my wife. Then we three are like fish in a tank. A most apposite image, your majesty, Cornucope said, but I refuse to be beaten. See, the roof of the horseless carriage can be raised over the vehicle, sealing it. He reached inside, adding, Allow me, your majesty. Ah, an instruction manual in the glove compartment. With the king in the passenger seat, Anastasia in the back, Cornucope sat behind the driving wheel and opened the manual. Curses! It's in German. German? Of the land occupied by the Holy Roman Emperor. 
Canst thou read this script? Cornucope nodded. I have some small understanding of the language from my days dueling with Prussian exiles. See here, the manual has diagrams, which I believe I could use to make the horseless carriage work. And then, the outside world. Estatia curled up in the back of the vehicle, certain that a time of peril was about to arrive. Take care, darling, she murmured. He did not seem to hear her. Take starting handle and motivate engine, he read. Then sit inside and pump left pedal. Release brake and press right pedal. Well, that seemed simple enough. Turning the starting handle at the front of the engine made the horseless carriage cough, then roar as the engine took hold. The din echoed around the chamber and all the fish swimming above darted off. Cornuco pulled up and secured the canvas roof, then leapt into the driver's seat, shut and locked the door, then pumped the left pedal and pressed the right pedal with his foot. Having released the brake, the horseless carriage began to move, then accelerate away. Over there, cried the king, pointing to a wide corridor leading up from the chamber. Where does it lead? Cornuco asked. To the observation window. Estatia peered over the front seats. A great pane of glass blocked the end of the short corridor, which they were heading for at ten miles an hour. Stop! Stop! she cried. Fifteen, twenty, said Cornucope, hunched over the steering wheel. You'll kill us all! Estatia cried. They hit the observation window and smashed through it. What were forced back by the surge of water. Soon, however, the chamber flooded, and Cornucope drove up the corridor once again, then out into the lake, like a bubble rising in a spring. At the surface, the zeppelin character of the horseless carriage took hold, and they rose into the air, shedding water, lily leaves and a number of dead fish as they did. Cornucope drove like a man possessed, leaning forward, clutching the steering wheel with white-knuckled hands, muttering to himself as if reciting the important parts of the instruction manual. Thou hast succeeded, the king said. A knighthood for thee, I say. And now, back to London town, Cornucope replied. Wrenching the steering wheel clockwise, Cornucope put the noon sun to his right and headed for egg and ham then stains, but Estatia glanced to her left to see a flock of birds heading straight for them. Look out! she cried. It was too late. Like blackbirds buzzing a falcon, the flock slammed into the horseless carriage with a noise as of pounding hammers, producing a haze of feathers and spotting the windscreen with blood. The engine spluttered, then died. We are undone, the king gasped. Estatia looked down to see an unfamiliar landscape. Gone was the pleasant, if hairy, Shepperton, Sunbury and Walton-on-Thames. All she could see was brown mud, ruined roads, and street upon street of bombed-out houses. But the horseless carriage was falling fast, and Cornucope said nothing in the manual explained what he should do. With a scream, 
Estacia curled up in the back seat, her head in her hands. There was a sickening crash, and then the world seemed to spin around her, and she was thrown back around the back seat, her breath forced from her body by the impact. Then, silence. The horseless carriage creaked. She could smell diesel fuel. Can't you cope? Your Majesty? The vehicle had rolled into an upright position, hissing steam escaping from its engine. She clambered up and looked over the edge of the front seats. Cornuco breathed, his right arm twisted into an impossible position. But the king hardly breathed, and there was blood on his lips, over his face, and soaked into his shirt. You've been indulging in Stephen Palmer's Hairy London, narrated by R.D. Watson. 